Then, I met her. Ten years after the crash, I met her. She lived in a community of the weak and the vulnerable, living in isolation aboard a cluster of rusting gas platforms in the North Sea. There were 450 of them living there, and I realise this only now. Back then, that was quite probably the largest self-sustaining community left in Great Britain. She was to become the driving force for recovery. It was this remarkable woman who kept things together as we rebuilt our country from the abandoned ruins of the oil age. I'm an old man now. Too bloody old. If we still use the pre-crash calendar, it would be the year 2061 as I write this. Today the world has lights again. Computers, even trams and trains. Technology that was once taken for granted before the crash. It's a very different world. There are far fewer people owning far fewer things. The skyline no longer bristles with telecoms pylons, sprouting satellite dishes and mobile phone antennae. There are no longer garish advertising billboards or phallic minds bigger than yours, high-rise office towers. Instead, our horizons are broken by a sea of wind turbines, big and small. I think of it as her world. She helped make it. She helped define it. I see her stubbornness, her determination, her common sense, her sense of fair play and her maternal wisdom in everything around me. But, sadly, she's a footnote in history. The e-books being written on the oil crash by academics today tend to focus on the things that went wrong in the first weeks and months of the crisis, not on the rebuilding that began ten years later. So her name is a small footnote. Just a surname, in fact. Sutherland. But I met her. I actually knew her. Adam Brooks, 21st of December, 51 AC, after the crash. Chapter 1 2010, eight days after the oil crash, North London. I'm really, really thirsty, Mummy. A quiet voice, her son. Yeah, whispered her daughter. Me too. Jenny Sutherland realised they'd not stopped since the first light of dawn had made it possible to pick their way through the rubbish-strewn streets without the help of a torch. Her mouth was dry and tacky too. She looked up and down the deserted high street. Every shop window a jagged frame of threatening glass shards. Every metal shutter protected shop front was crumpled and stove in. Several cars skewed across both sides of the road, smouldered in the pale morning light, sending up acrid wisps of burning rubber smoke into the grey sky. She glanced at the stores either side of them, all dark caves within, but all promising goods inside that had yet to be looted. Jenny would much rather have stayed where they were, out in the middle of the road, well clear of the dark shadows, the interiors, but water 
safe bottled water was something not to be without. Her children were right. This was probably as good a place as any to see what they could find. All right, she said. She turned to her daughter, Leona, and handed her one of their two kitchen knives. You stay here and mind Jacob. Leona's pale oval face, framed by dark hair, looked drawn and prematurely old. She had eyes that had seen too much in the last few days. Eyes that looked more like those of a haunted veteran from some horrible and bloody war than those of a nineteen-year-old girl. A week ago, this time of the morning, Jenny could imagine her daughter lying under a quilt and wearily considering whether to bother dragging herself across the university campus to attend the first study period of the day. Now, here she was being asked to make...